Let's take a little time to reveal The prehistoric stories that the earth once concealed Mix them all together on this ancient land It's time to spread some paleo jam Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Paleo Jam podcast. I'm your host, Malcolm Mills, and I'm with Dr. Liz Reed. G'day, Liz. How are you? I'm very good. And um, we're sitting on some steps. We are. But where are these steps, Liz? Where are we? We're in Blanche Cave at the World Heritage Narrow Court Caves. Okay, so um, you live in Narrow Court. Um, You work through University of Adelaide. Mm -hmm. Um, and do a lot of the paleo stuff there. Um, but the caves uh, are central to you uh, as an experience, central to you in terms of who you are, I suppose, mm-hmm. because of all your, your, your connection to it. Um, and I want to start by talking about Mammal of the Year mm-hmm. because... 2022 was the first year we because we've had bird of the year before but 2022 was the first year that Australia had mammal of the year and look I've got to be honest I was team um, various marsupials along the way as lots of people were but somehow it wasn't a marsupial that won what was it it was a southern bentwing bat so how did that come what, what well let's take a step back why is it such a cool animal? How long have we got? Yeah. <laughs> um, another 28 minutes. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, you know, bats in, the, in their own right are just such an amazing group of animals. They represent a huge percentage of the total mammal species on the planet. And they also cross so many habitat types, so many ecosystems, so many um, ecological niches. And while they are just such a critical group ecologically for the survival of, of ecosystems as we know it, they are also one of the most persecuted and misunderstood groups of, of animals. Something to do with a blood-sucking vampire from Transylvania? Yeah, Hollywood has not been kind to bats. You see so, quite a negative um, portrayal of them. So, so the southern bentwing bat, um, tell us a little bit about that particular creature. So that little bat is a cave-dwelling bat and it breeds in caves. It's also, unfortunately, become critically endangered uh, in recent times. So since colonisation, we've had uh, much more um, higher population numbers in the caves here at Narracourt and, and some other caves in Western Victoria. And that seems to have plummeted the numbers of bats, particularly since counts were done in the 1950s and 60s to suggest the population has gone from, you know, maybe, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands to not quite hundreds of thousands, but maybe 100,000 down to, you know, as little as 30,000. So that definitely, with, with its restricted breeding range and with the fact that it relies heavily on cave habitat, has led this animal to the brink of extinction. So, because it's interesting, because because when you th- when you think of a number thirty thousand, you think, oh, that's a lot, isn't it? But where it's come from to thirty thousand, and how long it's taken to get there, isn't that long? That's that's not a great trajectory, is it? It's not a good trajectory, and and there's 
one one unique perspective that we have here at the caves is the fossil record. And we have fossils of these bats going back for hundreds of thousands of years. They've been here resilient, doing very well. So there are drivers that have led to this situation that we're in now that we've basically imposed on them since we've been here. So, so, so what do we know? What do, what do we know about the factors? Because, because here in Australia, we've got the worst rate of mammal extinction. It's not just the bats, it, it's lots of other things. Worst rate of mammal extinction anywhere in the world in the last couple of hundred years. So, so what is it about the bats in particular? I think one of the key things for these little bats is going to be loss of habitat and loss of natural vegetation and natural areas such as wetlands where these animals would be feeding over. There's been, uh, just similarly as a persecution of, of the animals themselves, there's been, in a way, persecution of caves at times. When some caves in the past were used as rubbish dumps or they were used to you know, just fill them up because they didn't like, people didn't like having caves on their place. So they lost a lot of wintering habitat. The, the draining of the southeast of South Australia and the loss of wetlands would be a really critical factor. And then you combine that with the rise of monocultures and, and just a very different landscape, human impacts from um, you know, using caves. There's lots of complex factors. So, so they live in the cave, but they go out for lunch and dinner. Is that, is that kind of a, a sense of what they do? Yeah, they do live in the caves. So they'll spend all of the daylight hours in the caves and at night they'll go out to feed. During the summer months they come back to Bat Cave and another cave, number two caves in Western Victoria, um, and they'll uh, sort of breed. Uh, actually, the time of year we are now, we're actually expecting we're expecting bats, baby bats at the moment. Yep, so early November. That's right, yeah. So the summer, summer months they spend back in Bat Cave and Starlight Cave, and there's another cave near Portland. And then during the winter months, they also go to colder caves, uh, and then they'll enter Torpor. They do come in and out of that occasionally, and they'll. So Torpor is Torpor is when they 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 it's it's sort of, I suppose, analogous to a form of hibernation. Yeah, so they'll drop their body temperature around to ambient. They like the cold cave for that. They breathing rapidly, uh, breathing rate rapidly declines, and their heart rates are very low. And they'll go into this state of Torpor. Unfortunately, when they're like that, they're really susceptible to disturbance because it takes them a while to sort of warm up enough to be active again and we have to be very protective of their wintering sites. So the recurring theme here for them is they rely on the caves. Uh, that's their main, main area. So in, in that state of torpor, the caves gives them the protection. It does. From, from predators. From a, because, like, if I was a predator and I knew... <laughs> if I was a predator and I knew there was this big room with a whole lot of meat just kind of lying around to sleep. <laughs> it's a pretty cool place to go to feed, isn't it? Well, particularly for owls, and they do make, take advantage of that. We have uh, seen years ago, I saw bats um, that were actually taking torpid bats, off, uh, owls that were taking torpid bats off the wall and storing them in a cage. <laughs> <laughs> and we have seen bats hunting them. Um, in more recent times, we've even seen invasive pests like cats and, and rats, so we have to take measures to stop those. But predation is a natural thing, and that's something that they're you know able to cope and, with. And they have coped with that, obviously. You talked about the fact that the fossil yeah. record tells us yeah. that they've been here for a very long time. That hasn't been an issue until, oh, hello, yeah, <laughs> Europeans arrive and start messing yeah. with all the things. So one of the really interesting things that this whole bat topic brings us yeah. to 
is why caves are such a cool thing. So with the Naracourt Caves and the World Heritage stuff here, we we talk about them where we we find Thylacaleo and lots of other really cool fossils. And 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 you know if we get time, we'll we'll, we'll chat about that. But but what it also reminds us is that at a cave. It's not a thing where everything that was alive died and stuff. There's still a living ecosystem. That's a really important point. And if you think about it, most people, their first experience in a cave is either a show cave, a tourist cave, or it's in a movie. <laughs> and, and quite often people see them as, as entertainment venues. They're something that you go to and you enjoy, and they're basically static. But that's not the case at all. They're, I would consider them... You know, much more than just a pretty face. They're some of the most fragile ecosystems on the planet and very susceptible to impacts from anything coming into the caves. So what, what is it? What is it that makes them so fragile? If you think about caves and you know, we know that caves in some caves there are organisms that have evolved in total darkness. They don't have eyes, they have a really pale colour. They have no connection to the surface except for drip water coming in and so so they've evolved to not have any contact with large mammals walking through with caving helmets on or people coming into that system and it's a very low energy system and we can really introduce a lot of factors that will change the balance of that ecosystem for, for t particularly cave organisms. Because to, to, for, for a cave, like we, we're, we're sitting in, in like we, we've, we've come down the steps to Blanched Cave, we've moved along a fair bit where um, there's a little bit of light over there but there's, as in sunlight, but there's also some lights on the walls and stuff. And so all of that, all of that stuff, the fact that we, we want to be able to come in and see these things, that in itself then has an impact on the capacity of the thing that we're seeing. Absolutely. It's one of those, uh, you know, the, the classic sort of thing that you'll have when you're doing nature-based tourism or activities is that, you can love something to death. You know, so we have to sort of walk that fine line between absolutely having people in, into the caves. That's very important because we're not going to build advocacy for caves if people can't see them. Because we, we, Yeah, we want them to understand why they're important. Exactly. But in the same breath, we want to make sure that even a show cave uh, that we expect people to come in, we have to put handrails and paths to make it, you know, lights to make it safe, we can do that in a way that is still sensitive to the environment. Uh, and one of the great things that you know, most of the protected areas do, and certainly Narracourt Caves does, is in the management plan we have areas that have higher conservation status and, and aren't used by the public. So they protect 80% you know, and show 20%. And that way, we we do maintain some of those areas. Yeah, because you you I remember reading about like the building of 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 a road through a rainforest that allows people to get access to see the rainforest, so they can experience it and enjoy it and love it and save it. But the very fact of building the road through the rainforest gives more and more people access, which then has a detrimental impact upon the rainforest. So it is a, it's, and I suppose we, it's constantly trying to work out what the balance is or where the line sits, because I'm not sure if balance is ever the right word, because we often talk about the balance in nature. It's like, no, it's not a balance. Everything's struggling against each other, trying to eat things and stuff. Mm. It's this, we have a perception of, of balance because we 
have such a tiny time frame. But it's, it's not balance, is it? No, it's a tricky one. It, it, I sort of look at it with the caves as we, we don't want to disrupt the natural processes of the cave and, and leave this, you know, disrupt in the point that we make the, um, these processes extinct. So it stops being a natural cave. So we need to ensure that we, you know, things like building things on top of the surface, the hydrology of the caves, that all of those things have to be taken into account. Um, and you know, going back to what we were saying, it, it's also very difficult to manage a system as complex as a cave system if you don't know everything that's in there. And so part of managing is also understanding the different range of values. We can be very direct line and think, okay, Narracourt Caves is a World Heritage listed site for fossils, very good job of managing the fossils, but we also need to think about the thousands of other things. And the future fossils. Exactly. <laughs> I, the, the fossil record is honestly in danger of becoming extinct, and that's a crazy thing to say, but we, we can completely stop the processes, not, not just maybe making it inaccessible for things to fall in or you know the, the processes of the past that led to it, but also... Yeah, you know, for killing off half the animals. It's like the, the 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 experience of the caves like stops now in terms of of, of the dynamic nature of the system. Yeah. That's like yeah. right, we we're here, and this is this is how it will be. Because yeah. that's the thing that we we struggle with sometimes too is that 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 things change because of natural environmental pressures, and and. How do we how do we work out which of those, so that we're not just keeping things locked in twenty twenty two? Yeah. What are the natural things? So, you know, I mean, and, and pandas are a really cool example because it's like I reckon if it wasn't for humans, pandas would be gone already because they are knuckleheads. <laughs> <laughs> they are. They eat. Their environment until it's completely gone. They have like two and a half minutes a year in which they might breed or not breed. And they like, what are you like? Adelaide Zoo have had two pandas for 10 years and there is no child in sight. They're like, it's like, why are you still here? I think the point you're hitting on is we've fundamentally changed the surface of the planet and the organisms and we have our favourites and we have all sorts of bizarre ways that we reconcile that. Uh, And it can be the same with caves in in our approach to those and I think there's definitely a balance in management and and the really the driving force in objectively understanding what we have and then understanding threats and things such as what carrying capacities are for tourism is science. And science can often be the thing that's... Science and conservation can kind of take a back step to commercialisation at times, and that's where the balance needs to be um, in play there. And I think we do it well here at Narracourt. On that, a project that I'm leading at the moment is a natural values assessment. It was funded by through the Australian Heritage Grants so we're going through with a fine-tooth comb and identifying everything that's a natural value, from invertebrates to plants to um, biofilms to sediment deposits. So what's actually here? What's Let's here? Let's count all the things an and look at them. And, an inventory. Okay, so, so speaking of, 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 of research going on in the caves, um, we're here this weekend with some of your students from the University of Adelaide. Um, 
And they're doing a whole lot of things under your supervision. Um, so what kind of things um, are, are, are they looking at? Many and varied. Many and varied. And, and as soon as I'm asking the question, I'm thinking, there's so many students are down, there's like 10, ten. Uh, ten, ten students down. And they're all doing things to do with the caves? Some of them, uh, there's a couple here that are doing other things, but yeah, uh, they all have a tie to the caves for sure. Some of them, um, in fact, I think all of them that are here came through the undergraduate courses and uh, fell in love with the place. Yeah, and, and that's a really cool thing, isn't it? Like, and, and it, it reminds us the fact that those 10 students, and there's other peoples yeah. that do stuff in the caves too, um, uh, the the fact that those students, the, the the caves here, the World Heritage Caves, are part of central to what they're doing and the research they're doing, and the University of Adelaide does, and Flinders Uni does stuff, and there are lots of, you know, obviously co, I nearly said co-conspirators, but co, <laughs> collaborators, co collaborators, that's the word, uh, through other unis yeah, and museums absolutely. and stuff. So this is a pretty big deal of a place. It's a huge deal of a place, and it's so easy to take for granted what's on your doorstep. And, you know, this is a World Heritage listed area. It's, you know, considered to be of universal value to all people on the planet. And it, it doesn't come that easily to get that, does it? It doesn't. That took a long time. Um, you know, um, I, I think it was pretty clear early on when the fossils at the Victoria Cave were discovered, yeah. that, like, this is something really special. Yeah. But that process then takes a long time and lots of reports and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so on a, on a, we, we, we've talked about caves as living ecosystems, um, but you know, part of you, you know, you're, you're a paleontologist, so and, and you, your laboratory is this remarkable place that we're in. We're, we're actually sitting right next to a dig site as well, and. Um, I won't turn around because my legs can't move anymore <laughs> at the moment because I've been sitting in the one spot. But, you know, you, you go to that dig site and you're going down and you're going back and back and back and back in time. So what are some of the things that, you, that, that, that you've loved the most in terms of that have been found here? For me... And it's like I, picking a favourite child, I know, but, but... Well, it's interesting. I don't know. I've often sort of scrutinised the way I think about stuff for me it's the stories that are that we unlock with the science the 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 information that we get and it may not be that I have a specific favorite fossil or a favorite thing what inspires me about this place and caves in general is how they can store archives or records of the surface that they've collected over hundreds of thousands of years and in the case of the time period that I work in, which is the last half a million years, it's like getting, you know, wildlife records and climate records that go back half a million, but they're relevant to what we're doing now because they're the same animals and the same patterns of climate that we see. But we're in now we're looking through the lens of anthropogenic climate change and, and all this disruption and trying to then focus forward as well to some really big picture questions around, you know, how do we basically save all this important life on Earth that we're, we're sort of systematically disrupting with the big elephant in the room of climate. So for me, that's, that's what I love about this place is those big picture stories that we can unravel that hopefully have some relevance to, to saving 
uh, saving our ecosystem, saving our animals. Because you're right, the, the people, the, the science that understands extinction, the science that, that with its co-sciences, its buddy sciences, understands what happens when you massively increase CO2 in the atmosphere... It's paleontology. Yes. We've seen extinction. We see, you know, 252 million years ago, the Permian extinction, the Great Dying, the mm. biggest extinction the world has ever seen caused by a massive increase of carbon dioxide. We know what happens yes. when we do that and it disrupts everything. And, and there yes. are all these loop loops that, yeah. that you know, the, the t one of the most horrifying things is that the CO2 increases the temperature of the ocean that melts the methane, methane ice at the bottom of the ocean, which then bubbles up, goes into the atmosphere, and causes the temperature to increase even more. So you've got these feet, which then causes the water to increase even less. So we, 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 we've, in the paleontology space, we've seen all those things. Um, and yet, you know, there's, there's, it, it's, we're, we're not quite there yet in terms of being able to do all the things that we do. Okay, so we've we've talked a bit about the caves and the maze. I've got to have got to say that you know, as as I've said to many people, my favourite animal is thylacoleo. <laughs> I never noticed that. You never notice that. It's just, oh, I, I I I just I love the I, I, its teeth. I love that it's just this fascinating, um, so different to to other predators. It's a you know it's a giant sheer toothed possum kind of thing um that we've the the what we've learned from science in terms of how it's hunted we've also heard from first nation australians that have seen the skulls of this animal dug up and go oh by the way that animal used to do this entirely consistent mm -hmm. with what the science has told us yes. i mean that's fascinating isn't yes, it that is fascinating it's 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 it, it's and it, it it's because for a long time we would go, oh, well, yes, but, but first nation knowledge is not science. It's not, well, actually, um, listen. Mm. listen. Listen to whether it's Adyamatna people or Ghana people or, or Naranjiri or from wherever. The, 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 there's some things in their stories that can help give us a picture. Um, so there, there's, a, there's a work of art that, that um, is on the side of the lab here. Uh, I want to talk a, a little bit about that. Um, because what I love about that, it kind of leads on from what we were talking about a short while ago, that what did it look like if we were, you know, if we were half a million years ago, or a couple of hundred thousand years ago, if the time machine doesn't work that well, what does it look like if you happen to be standing there? And what's really important, I think, is to understand that, that it's not, not that the animals got smaller, because red kangaroos were around then, on, on wombats that are alive now were then it's just that these other big things and some other things disappeared so what do, what do you think of when you you look at that work of art i think you know from all my time here one of the things that's one of the hardest things for people to grasp is exactly that that we had a whole ecosystem of, of animals and plants here and a lot of them are the same as today, and we lost a portion of those uh, with the megafauna extinction. But 
we get people saying, well, that's not in that painting. We deliberately put in there galahs and grey kangaroos. And, and, and I think it's an emu? Emu yeah, or a cassowary? Emu. There's, there's emu and also Jean Yornis. So we, we deliberately seeded it with all these. And people, it, you know, you might have, we might have told them about that for 20 years, but they looked at the painting for 10 seconds and go, oh, that's a galah. Like, oh, hallelujah, it's a galah. Yeah. Uh, that's the connection, the power that art has. So I look at that and I think, you know, this is showing me such a biodiverse area and, and it, it does make me sad to a degree at, that how much we've lost and that sadness really lands heavily on the last couple of hundred years. To, you know, if we've because we keep doing it. We, we keep, keep doing it, yeah. It's just sort of how do we <laughs> get that across and, and this is where places like Narracourt Caves and, and who'd have thought that fossils could potentially, you know, get people to take action on conservation and, and you know, I often think we're sorting through a tray of fossils or digging fossils that I'm just digging through extinction. That's my business and I don't <laughs> want to keep doing it again. Yeah, so repeating that. often when I'm in Prof Flint mode, yeah. I'm like, hello, I'm Professor Flint yeah. and uh, I dig up dead things. Yeah. I dig up extinct dead yeah. things. That's my job. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so talk about that painting yeah. painted by... Julian Hume. Julian Hume, fabulous work of art. Um. Brings us also, I guess, to that subject of the whole the whole art and science thing. Because we've we've done some stuff here in the community where we've yeah. we did a project a few years ago where we worked with the primary school kids yeah. who drew some art of the local stuff, and then we got the high school kids yeah. to work on a performance piece. Where I remember this moment being at the high school, and it went from the, the, talking about the caves to from, from you know oh it's the place that we went to as kids and it's where the tourists go to wait a minute this is this is our story isn't it yeah it's like yeah yeah so so how do we how do we take the lessons from narrow court i guess in a sense because they're really cool lessons and and transfer them elsewhere how do we get other people to engage in their local prehistoric story um, and yeah, I think we've talked about this before where there's a strong sense of place and affinity for, for people when they have a connection to where they're from and I think sometimes we lose touch of, uh, with that and it's just an, just the sort of crazy life we lead and, and there's got to be ways to hook people back into connecting with that, that story and there's no better way to do that than actually getting out and it, being exposed to nature and interacting with nature and connecting with it and... So a, a great way to do that, to, to get people involved, is to connect them via you know, interpretation through going to a national park or a guided tour, or, as we've found so successfully, art. And, and we've had it, haven't we, many times people go, well, I had no idea we had such cool stuff. Just went, seriously, diprotodons walked here? Yeah, oh, that, that is, is that stuff, isn't it? It, it, it is. It's where you're, you're talking. I remember talking to some kids at, at Cooper PD, yeah. and I was talking about, plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs and these kids were sitting down in, in, the, in the class at the school and I said I want you to look up I want you to look up and you know 100 million years ago swimming above your head right where we are now not not on a tv screen not on somewhere but right where we are swimming above our heads would have been these remarkable animals whose fossils we now find. Absolutely. And that, that, that takes us back to the, to, to the kids here at Narrow Court. They went, this is, this is our story, isn't it? It's almost like, you know, cool stuff only happens elsewhere. You know, it's only found somewhere else. And, and maybe that's part of, you know, one of the things I often 
sort of makes me a bit sad is when we have, uh, I, I think it's not so much hopefully now, but you know, I remember when I was a cave guide here and, and there would be people on the tour who didn't even know what a quoll was. And, but they knew what a lemur was or something else. And I think, yeah. wow, that's really sad if, if to start with, we have such a fundamental disconnect with our own... With our own story. Our, our own, own story. How are we going to be advocates and fight for it? Yeah, because it's, it's part of our cultural heritage as Australians, yeah. isn't it? It's, it's, you know, we have such a unique existing flora and fauna. I mean, gum trees, hello. We could do a whole podcast on those crazy weird things that cause fires, keep fires going, and then they're like, thank you for the fire, we will now take over this place. But of course, you know, we're we're sitting on the land of of ancient wisdom of people that knew all this um, for thousands of years and and, uh, the Aboriginal people that lived in this area, peoples that lived in this area. And and we've, I think it is, where we're doing to our own detriment is to disconnect, to unplug from, from the reality of what's happening around us and to to lose that passion and fight to to really care for it. And that's the power of those of us who tell stories, who do science and who bring that uh, to people so they can start to get on board because people have to get on board for themselves on their own. And it might be that they get on board through art or they decide to be a scientist, but you can't sort of tell people how to connect. You just need to provide the little nudge so they can connect. Because yeah, wherever you live, wherever you live on this planet, there are things that lived before you for across millions and millions of years. Liz, we are just about to (laughs) run out of time. The exit music is about to start. And um, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Um, And for sharing your stories and your passion here on Paleo Jam. It's time to spread some paleo jam.